Jesus' um, Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, where Jesus is really laying out a choice before us, a decision regarding a path to walk on or not. And you know, as you think about it, your life is a series of decisions and choices, but if you think a little bit more about it, you realize that some decisions you make are far more important than others, and they have far bigger implications than other decisions. I mean, some decisions you're going to make, like where to go to lunch today, or, or this and that, they're, they're not that big of a choice. But there are some decisions that when you make it, it will impact not only like that moment in your life, but uh, all the moments that come after that, because these decisions that you might make will lead to uh, the formation of the person you're going to be. For me, as I look back on my life, I think choosing uh, where I went to college was huge. It didn't feel like that big of a decision in that moment, but as I look back and I chose to go where I went uh, versus another school, and I look back at all the relationships that took place because of that one decision and all the ways God worked and designed everything to come together, it, it just amazes me how I, I went there and met all these different people. I joined a fraternity and I met a guy named John, and John told me, you need to go and be a camp counselor at this camp in Pennsylvania called Summer's best two weeks. I, I go there every summer. You need to join me. He, he got an he um, interview for me, and, and they said, yes, we want you. Will you come? I made the decision to go. If I would not gone to Purdue, I would have not met John. If I would not met John, I wouldn't have gone to camp. If I would not gone to camp, I wouldn't have met Becky Roost, who now is Becky Brown and the mother of my three sons. Um, when I met Becky, uh, you know, she was dating this other guy named Joel, and Joel was amazing. In fact, I met Joel before uh, he came to camp, and I told Joel, you should come to this camp with us, and, and, and you should be a part of this camp, and I did, and, and Joel came, and, and, and he became my friend, and it's really interesting, this guy Joel, and he's dating this girl named Becky Roost, and I'm dating some other girl, and she was great and all, but we ended up breaking up, and then Joel came to me and said, you need to wait for somebody like Becky, okay? Like, <laughs> you, he had no idea how literal I was going to take those words, right? He's like, you need to wait. You need to wait for somebody like Becky. And Becky's the kind of girl you need to be looking for, emotionally healthy, spiritually healthy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm like, done. <laughs> so I graduate from Purdue. I moved to Indianapolis. I make a decision to not go to law school, but instead to go be an intern at this church. And I'm working at this large church in Indianapolis. And as a student ministry guy, and I, we're on a retreat, and we're coming back from this retreat, and I'm talking to a guy who says he went to Taylor University. I said, oh, Taylor University, do you know Becky Roost? He said, I do. In fact, did you know she just moved to Indianapolis? And I said, really? <laughs> well, what happened to her and Joel? He said, they just broke up. I said, do you have her phone number? Because <laughs> I'm looking for a girl just like Becky Roost, right? And he did, and back then, kids, we, we didn't have these, you know, supercomputing devices in our pockets. We had to, like, go find a telephone, you know, like, in your house that was connected to the wall. So I remember standing there looking at the telephone going, do I make this call, right? Do I do it? Do I? So I pick up the phone. I call Becky Roost, and it's been about a year and a half since I've seen her, and she picked up the phone. Unbelievable, because you could go for days back then not getting a hold of somebody. <laughs> I said, this is Scott Brown, and she said, Scott Brown. Oh, I mean, she didn't even remember me, right? And I had to say, from camp, like, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, long story short, these things 
they have an impact on us. These decisions, and they feel small in the moment, right? And where you go to school, who you're going to marry, uh, the decision of which jobs to take, all these things are enormous, and they, you never know what kind of decision is going to lead to another decision. It's going to shape you and form you into the person that you are becoming. But Jesus, as he brings closure to the Sermon on the Mount, is talking about one decision that needs to be made in the life of every human that impacts everything. One choice above all choices sets the course of not just your life here on this earth, but your, your life in an eternal sense. And so we go to Matthew 7 and verses 13 through 14 where Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So Jesus is talking about this choice, the the choice between two gates, one narrow, one wide, two paths, two groups of people, two destinations ultimately. And Jesus says that one path or one choice has a wide gate. It's an easy path. It's like, you know, some of the trails that you can hike here in Arizona, to use an Arizona analogy, like there are some hiking trails that are just wide paths and they're easy and they're not that difficult. Large crowd is there, huge parking lot at this trail. But this trail is so easy and so beautiful, and while you're not paying attention, it takes you off a cliff to your destruction. That's what Jesus says. But there's another path that Jesus talks about that has a narrow gate, and it's difficult to find the gate even, and few people find it. But this path, this difficult hike, this arduous path, ultimately leads to eternal life. This is what Jesus is talking about. And we like to think of it in this way, like as we look at this decision, like one of two paths, I want you to consider that it's really not a choice between one of two paths. What I would like to impress upon you is the reality is you're already on one path by the very state of just being born on planet Earth as a human being that's broken and fallen in Adam's image like me. And you're not standing as a neutral party trying to decide between the wide path on the one hand or the narrow path on the other. In fact, you're born on a path already, and so am I. And so the decision that you've got to make is this. Am I going to get off the path that everyone's on, myself included, and get on this other path, this narrow gate that leads to eternal life? But it's more complicated than that. I really like to believe that I'm neutral, that I am the medium between all things. Like, I don't like Republicans totally, and I don't like Democrats either. I like to stand right in the middle and critique both, right? You with me? Now, some of you aren't. Some of you are, like, firmly on either side. Now, okay, but I'm like, I love to be the happy medium in all things. I want to critique. Like, I would love Jimmy Fallon's job. You don't have to have an opinion about anything. You can just make fun of everything or be happy about everything. My job's harder. You got to take a stand, right? You know, woe is me. But like the point is, I like to sit sort of the middle, but the, the reality is this, we don't live in the middle. And I want to use a different analogy. Instead of a path, I come from river cities. I was raised in Evansville, Indiana on the Ohio River. It separates Kentucky from Indiana. And like, I kind of died a little bit inside when I moved to Phoenix, and I love Phoenix. I'm committed to Phoenix. I don't think I'm ever leaving Phoenix. I love it here, but one of the things that I mourn is the loss of rivers. We have the Salt River, which is more like a gravel pit 
that occasionally has water in it, and right now it does. I was driving to Goodyear to go to a baseball game this week, and then my son was playing in, and I drove past and saw that there's actually a stream flowing in the Salt River. It's amazing. But where I grew up, there are these rivers that are wider than this whole complex and wider than this whole parking lot. Like the Ohio River is an enormous river, and when it floods and swells, it begins to rage and flow at speeds that are incredible and can be dangerous. If you were to fall in, fall in right here, you would be taken downstream like that. And the analogy I want you to see is that you're not just in our day and age and just being a human being, you're not simply on a path, you're actually in a stream, in a raging river that's flooded and swelled, and and the current is dragging you away from God's kingdom and his values. And the question that you've got to make is this. It's a decision not between two paths or, or this or that. Is There is a path to get on. There's a gate that you need to get to. But you're not just standing there in a neutral position. You live in a day and an age and a culture and a time that is a raging current that is pulling you away from the kingdom of God. This is a tough thing to say in this day and age, and it's only gonna get worse this morning, but there is a narrow gate to walk in. You're not just sitting here neutrally. You've fallen into the river, and it has drug you miles down from where you need to be, and the current is not trickling like the salt river. It's a raging river of current that's pulling you away from God's kingdom values and his kingdom itself. And Jesus has been warning us in the Sermon on the Mount, don't define your life according to the kingdoms of this world. It was true in his day, and it's absolutely true today as well. Are you going, the decision you've got to make then is really not between which path will I choose. You're on a path, you're in a river, you live in a current, in a culture, as I do I. And it's shaping us and it's forming us. The question is, are we gonna swim with all of our might to get to this narrow gate and to walk on the path of eternal life. Now let's be straight about this. As a culture, we despise what Jesus is saying. And I'm not talking about unbelievers, I'm talking about believers. (laughs) You and I, I was born in 1967, I'll be bold enough to tell you my age, and I was raised primarily in the 70s and then in high school in the 80s. During the Cold War, like, I, I did not grow up in a time that like, was friendly to Christianity, and it's only gotten worse. We know this. It was difficult for me. It's much more difficult for my, the, my son's generation, and it will be much, much more difficult for my grandchildren's generation. Here we stand at this time, at this hour. Exclusivity is one of the main problems we have as a culture with Jesus. Jesus comes along and makes incredibly exclusive claims. He says, I am the way. There's not just a path. He's saying, I am the path. I'm the way. I'm the truth. We don't want to define anything as absolutely true, but Jesus says, no, there's a way, and I am the way. There is a truth. I am that truth, and I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me, Jesus says. It doesn't get any more offensive to us than that. And we're going to be talking about the exclusive nature of Jesus and the gospel this morning. But the thing I want to impress upon you is all truth is exclusive. Jesus is not the only one in town saying, I'm true and I'm exclusively true. At the end of the day, what I want to impress upon you is any truth claim that anyone makes, including math or science, is an exclusive 
truth claim. And the question is, which truth are you going to embrace? What doctrine are you going to embrace? Even if you're an atheist, you are not standing neutrally aside saying, I don't have any doctrine. You do. And I hope to make this point from the gospel from you, for you this morning. We feel things in our bones, man. We, as a, as a culture, whether you're a Christian or a total atheist, we feel these things profoundly. How can there be just one faith? Isn't it arrogant to believe that your religious beliefs are true compared to other religious beliefs? Don't you feel that? That is a difficult question that we wrestle with. Aren't religions equally true or equally false or basically saying the same things and aren't they ultimately pointing to the same deity? And this morning I want to tackle some of the basic things that we all feel, that we all sense, that we all breathe in this culture and think about them for a moment because here's the thing, if you're going to swim in the current in which we're in and swim towards the narrow gate, you have got to begin to use your mind. I remember when my anthropology professor in Anthropology 101 at Purdue University stood up on his desk, would stand on his desk and yell at us and say things like, there is no absolute truth and human beings are no different than, you know, <laughs> than apes and so forth and it's nothing, we're just here by random cause and he would just rail and rail and rail. And it was that summer as I'm working in a plastics factory in Evansville, Indiana and I'm creating plastic parts for refrigerators, and I have about 30 seconds in between each part, and I read Mere Christianity like twice that summer, in between cutting little pieces of plastic and putting it in, and for the first time in my life, I began to use my mind and not just my emotions as it related to my faith. We've got to start thinking, and I want to commend to you a great book called The Reason for God, Belief in the Age of Skepticism by Tim Keller. And basically what I'm going to be laying out this morning is the first chapter from this book, not word from word, but the same kind of thought. One of the things that we all feel and sense is this. All major religions teach basically the same thing. Dr. Keller describes a time when he sat on a panel with ministers in New York City where he pastors, and it was a, it was a group from all different world religions. He was the, the Christian representative. And this young man addressed the group in this in this conference and said all major religions in the end are teaching basically the same thing saying that the doctrinal differences between all the world's religions don't matter and in the end believe all the same things but Keller asked him can you describe this God to me and the young man said he is the all-loving spirit of the universe Keller says in chapter one of his book, the problem with this young man's position is its inconsistency. It insists that doctrine is unimportant, but at the same time assumes doctrinal beliefs about the nature of God. Buddhism doesn't believe in a personal God at all. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam believe in a God who hold people accountable for their beliefs and practices and whose attributes could not be reduced to only love. Christianity teaches that God is both love and truth right? That he's just, he's altogether holy and just, but he's also altogether good and loving. Ironically, the insistence that doctrine does not matter is a doctrine itself. The belief that all religions are the same is just as great a truth claim as saying that Jesus alone is the way to God the Father. The belief that all religions are the same 
is on par with the absolute saying that Jesus is the only way to the Father. You're saying all beliefs are the same. It's a universal statement. Next, each religion sees part of the spiritual truth, but none can see the whole truth. I've heard this many times as well in talking to people, and there's a well-known story and a well-known analogy that goes with this thought, and it's this. There are several blind men walking along, and they come to an elephant. Now, first of all, that's kind of funny if you think about it in a story. Multiple blind people just happening upon the same location in the world where there's an elephant. But they're simultaneously reaching out, and, the, and one of them touches the trunk and says, oh, there's a snake here. And another one touches his leg and says, what I'm, what I'm describing is probably a tree because it feels like a tree trunk. And so the story is meant to say that these blind men are like world religions and each of them only sees part of the truth and none of them are completely true. They're just sort of observing their own little piece of the elephant. But how can you know that only each blind man only sees part of the elephant unless you claim to be the one who sees the whole elephant yourself? That's the thing. Who is the person with sight? Who has complete knowledge? And in this story, this idea is how could you possibly know that one religion doesn't have the truth unless you yourself have superior knowledge stepping outside of the story and say, yes, it's an elephant. I hold that knowledge. I hold that understanding. This point of view sounds humble. None of us knows the complete truth, but in the end, it's just as exclusive a claim saying no religion sees the whole truth. Next, people only believe in religion because they're conditioned to believe it through their culture and family. We all know this is true. To some degree, we know that we become the people that we're surrounded by, our nation, our culture, our people, our families, and we we do adopt that. We all know that we are largely who we are because of the people we were born into and the time and place in which we were born. And so one of the things that my anthropology professor would rail on is say, All religious conviction is based on a day and a place and a culture. You're just being influenced by your culture. And we all, again, like to think of ourselves as the neutral party, the one that stands outside of it. We all like to think that we think for ourselves and everyone else is the one that's conditioned to believe what they believe. And our viewpoint stands above the rest and we say they have that political belief because they're from a red state or they're from a blue state or of course they believe the Bible. They were born in the South. But if you believe that all religious belief is conditioned by your culture and your context, you need to be intellectually honest enough to say that that includes your convictions as well. That anthropology professor would never want to admit it, but his convictions, his lack of faith, his unbelief, was just as much conditioned by culture as my conviction to believe, but without the humility to admit it. You may be a skeptic. You may be a total atheist. But would you be if you were born in the Middle East? All of us have conditions. It's not just the believer that is conditioned this way, but our unbelief. Maybe it's time to start doubting our doubts as much as we doubt our faith. Another point is this, it's arrogant to insist your religion is right and to convert other people to it. It's arrogant to insist that you're right and to convert other people to it. And many people in our culture believe that any exclusive truth claims regarding spirituality cannot be true. 
But this objection is an exclusive truth claim regarding spiritual reality. It's the absolute belief that there are no absolutes. It's the absolute certainty that there is no absolute certainty. And this belief has many doctrinal components to it and requires faith, exclusive faith to believe in it. Listen to this, please. God doesn't exist and is unknowable. If God exists, he is loving but has no judgment towards sin whatsoever. God is an impersonal force rather than a person who would speak through a person like Christ or through scripture or hold to certain truths. And all of these are just as unprovable as believing that Jesus Christ is God's son. Anyone who holds any conviction believes they are right and wants someone else to agree with them. We know this is true. So in our day and our age, we sort of have this feeling of like, it's, it feels so uncomfortable to share my faith or to have somebody share their faith because it's so, it's so arrogant to believe that your truth is right and you want other people to hear it or to agree with you. But people do this about everything, man. One of my good friends, one of my really better friends in life is an atheist, and he lives in my neighborhood, and we hang out a lot together, and we even take almost a daily walk. It started as a prayer, kind of a daily prayer walk with myself, the dog, and a cup of coffee, but he wanted to join me on these daily walks, and uh, how can I say no to an atheist saying, no, you know, I need to pray. I probably should have. Anyway, but... So we go on our daily walks, and one of the things that we talk about, we talk about everything. We're that close. I mean, we talk about all the details of our life, and he's really frustrated with his sister, who's a Christian. And, and one of the things that drives him crazy about his Christian sister is that she's always saying things like, well, God told me this, and God led me to do this, and so forth. And he said, you know, one of the things that really bugs me is how God always tells her to do stuff that just sound like all the stuff she already really wants to do. I gotta admit, that bugs me too. <laughs> and when I'm talking to a, an atheist or an unbeliever, a total skeptic, I wanna agree with them on any point I can, and I'll say, absolutely, that's wrong. And I'll say to my friend, like, you know, honestly, I believe people are hearing from God when they say things like, you know what, I feel like God is telling me something and calling me to something, and it's not when he wants me to pursue more money or more pleasure or more just of all the things I by nature want anyway, but when he starts telling me to love my enemies, pray for those who persecute me, serve the poor, love somebody that's different than me, die to, you know, divisions in my life and my heart, okay, that, maybe God is talking to that person, right? So what's interesting is it drives him crazy that his sister shares this with him, it drives him crazy that his sister has these opinions about God and God's will, but What's ironic is, as we make our mile and a half to two mile walk every day, is all of the very intense opinions he has about life and his worldview that he wants to impose upon his sister, upon me, upon the culture, upon politics, upon the whole world. This guy that believes that we're here 100% by accident has strong, absolute moral conviction about schooling and education and taxes and morality. This guy that believes the second you die, there will be no accountability, that we're all just gonna turn to dust and the worms are gonna eat our bodies and there's no ultimate meaning, has absolute conviction and truth and wants you to know about it. And you know that's true. Even if you're an atheist, you gotta admit this is true. So it's not wrong for us to share our truth, to share our worldview, 
and to want people to hear about it. Last question, do all exclusive claims cause people to act in a superior way and cause people to mistreat others? In the beginning of The Reason for God, this book, Tim Keller describes another young skeptic who said to him, religious exclusivity is not just narrow, it's dangerous. Religion has led to untold strife, division, and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world. Now, he goes on to say this. It may surprise you that though I'm a Christian minister, I agree with this. Religion, generally speaking, tends to create a slippery slope in the heart. Each religion informs its followers that they have the truth, and this naturally leads them to feel superior to those with different beliefs. A religion tells its followers that they are saved and connected to God by devotedly performing that truth. This moves them to separate from those who are less devoted and pure in life. And what Keller would say is on the one hand, you know what, Christianity really is a religion. Of course it is. It it is one of the world's main religions. But that Christianity is distinctly different than the other world religions in this way. Every other philosophy, every other world religion has a scheme or a plan whereby you are made right with God on the basis of what you have done, on your ability to keep the law, keep the commandments, be moral, be right, and then you're judged based on whether you're getting the job done, whether you're climbing the stairway to heaven properly or not. You tracking with me? And so your morality... Your goodness does, if you feel like you're doing a little better and you're keeping the law a little better, if you're not careful with religion, you can begin to separate from other people and begin to think yourself better. And we know that religion has caused strife and war. Even sects of Christianity have caused strife and war and problems and death. We know that to be true. If you will read history, though, you will also see that atheism, communism in our generation, has killed more people than anything. Nazis, the communists, these are atheistic worldviews responsible for the deaths of millions and millions of people. Does what you believe, if you believe in absolute truth, guarantee that you will be doing evil towards others? And I think the answer is it depends on what you're believing. It depends on what faith you're being taught. Jesus comes along and says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who humble themselves before the living God. Blessed are those who forgive their enemies, not attack them and wage war against them and kill them, who love their enemies and pray for those who are persecuted. This is the message of the gospel. That the gospel is not you earning salvation, it's Jesus Christ earning it for you. And in order to become a Christian, in order for you to enter this narrow gate, and here it is, Not literally right here, but (laughs) the narrow gate is Jesus Christ and it's faith and repentance in him. And in order for you to enter this narrow gate, you have to humble yourself before a holy God and say, I have been born into this whole world and this whole system that's not just a neutral party. It's a raging torrent that is pulling me away from the kingdom of God and I have gladly participated in it every day of my life a life of selfishness, a life of building my own kingdom, a life of not wanting you, God, at the center of my world, but me, I'm at the center of my world. I am the one who is king and pronounce myself as king. This is the reality with us. 
You can't become a Christian unless you're willing to admit that you are broken, fallen, sinful, and have been a rebel against God and his kingdom and his kingdom values. And so a person who humbles themselves that way and enters that narrow gate, not because they're good, but because Jesus is good and, and he died for you and he rose for you and he had to forgive you and it's all grace. It has nothing to do with your righteousness. It's all grace. That person in turn should go live their life in such a way that they are never give, being given into judgmentalism or legalism or, or being someone who's two-faced and hypocritical. They're saved by grace. They're saved by mercy. Could never think of living in such a way that would lead to the tyranny of others or the terrorism of others because they've been saved by God's mercy and grace. What you believe matters. Ideas matter. And there stands a choice to be made today. And I hate to spies when things like what's happened to Zoe take place. It grieves me to the core to stand in this hospital room with her on Friday and seeing this vibrant young woman that last time I saw her just a few months ago that just filled a room with her personality, taking breath only because of machines and knowing that she's the same age roughly as all three of my boys. And I hate that. And I declare with you that that's not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. That This is the reason for which Christ has come. This is awful. But this is a moment. Moments like this are a moment where you, many of you younger people and friends, it was hard for me to believe. I know you don't think so, but growing up in the day and age I grew up, it was not easy to believe in that day and age. It still isn't. And it's worse for you. If you're in your 20s or younger, it's worse. It's far worse. Your children, your, my grandchildren, are gonna have a far more difficult time in being faithful to Jesus Christ because this raging torrent is only picking up speed and, and it's becoming more and more difficult to follow Jesus in this day and age, in the Western world. It just is. And you have a decision to make and you need to make it and to, to realize you're, you were born in a day and an age that has a spirit to it and certain convictions to it and you'll either use your mind to swim towards this narrow gate or you won't. But if you don't, you're gonna be swept up in this tide that's gonna take you far from the kingdom of God and ultimately your destruction where you will drown. And you want to believe, you younger people, you want to believe, I have this day, I have this moment, I, I'm gonna have a million more like it. But a moment like this with dear Zoe reminds us that you don't know the day or hour. You are utterly out of control of your life and so I'm utterly out of control of my own children's life. God has reminded me of this enormously in two ways recently. One is the accident my boys were in. It just woke me up to say, I can pray for them, I can worry all I want, but I cannot control the day or the hour of their life. And I say to them and I say to you, do not be foolish enough to think that you have another moment to live. <laughs> Don't be foolish enough to say that you get to decide when and where your life will come to an end. You are not in control of that moment. So if you're putting off this decision, this decision to follow Jesus, to bow to him, to repent, to walk through this narrow gate, I plead with you. I beg you, as your spiritual father, do not put this off a moment longer. 
You're not in control of your destiny. You're not in control of your life. You're not the king of the universe. You live and move and have your being in God. And he's a good father. This gate is narrow. There are few people walking on it today, but it leads to eternal life. And I plead with you, walk through this gate. Walk by faith through this gate. Let's pray. Father, if we're truthful, each one of us are skeptical in this day and this age. We are products of our culture. We are materialist. We are hedonist. We're consumers. We're highly individualistic and autonomous. We think we're laws unto ourselves, but we are not. And I beg for mercy, Father, for this generation, for, for this entire world in the Western world where we believe that we are the center of the universe. And I pray, Lord, that you would awaken us to our need for for you. We need you. We are desperate from you. And we spend each moment of each day denying that reality. And as much as we hate this for Zoe, I pray that we would take this opportunity to take stock of our lives. For this to remind us of how precious each moment is. And if there is somebody we need to call and ask forgiveness to, and from, that we would do that, and not assume or presume we have another day to do that. If we need to repent to you, and come to you in faith, and repent of our sin, and follow you, and walk through that narrow gate, that we would not presume upon you, thinking we have another moment. Whatever it is, you may be calling us. If it's something that needs to be done today, then let us do it today. Not presuming upon you for another hour, another moment, Lord. Help us to be right with you today to walk with you today, to enter through this narrow gate today. And we know that this must come from your grace, and so we ask for the grace and the mercy and the kindness that you might give us to do that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.